Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 30th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, a wise man once said, there's so much to do and so much to see. So what's wrong with taking the back streets? So I'm going to ask you, what's wrong with taking the back streets? Uh, I don't know. Well, you'll never know if you don't go. What's wrong with taking the back streets? Well, you'll never shine if you don't glow. Oh, I know that song. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Shrek song. (laughs) Some might say that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So would you rather be an all-star or a rock star? I don't know. Well, you're clearly an all-star in flesh and blood. You don't play musical instruments very well, so it's hard to call you a rock star. Is that is that an all-star if I'm a star of a singular game? Yeah, usually. I think oh, so. Okay. You're the all-encompassing star of flesh and blood. Okay, okay. That's what it means to be the world champion, I think, at least. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. So do you want to spend the whole episode talking about the nuances of the philosophical meaning of Smash Mouth's classic hit, All-Star, or... Do you want to talk about Flesh and Blood Limited Design? I'd rather talk about Flesh and Blood Limited Design. You said okay. you called me an all-star, but I feel like my definitely only feel that way about Flesh and Blood. So talking about not Flesh and Blood doesn't seem great. I could have gone either way, so I'm happy you picked Flesh <laughs> and Blood. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> so I guess there's a new set that was announced recently, Outsiders, and from what... The rumors on the internet are it's supposed to be the best Flesh and Blood Limited set since Welcome to Wraith. So that means that in public perception, at least, all the limited sets since Welcome to Wraith haven't been as good. So we wanted to talk about what we liked and haven't liked about the previous sets limited-wise and what we really hope outsiders will bring to the table. Yeah. So I will have to admit, I feel like I haven't given Arcane Rising and Monarch really their fair shakes. I haven't gotten a draft either format. I've played some sealed of both, but are you in the same boat? Yeah, that's actually one of my questions, though. So we can start there, though. So okay. it's pretty noticeable, though, that the limited formats for, I guess, callings, nationals, and worlds, pro tours, all that stuff, it always focuses on draft. And there really haven't been very many sealed flesh and blood events at all. I think there was one Tales of Aria calling, and that's the only one that I can really think of. I think there were two Tales of Aria callings. Okay, okay. Do you think that's just going to continue to be the primary focus, and would you like to see more focus on Sealed again? Yeah, I think if we get a limited calling, I'd expect them to stick with the day one Sealed, day two draft. And I think like a lot of their drafts a lot of the recent sets have been more focused on draft like both aria and uprising when you play the draft format it if for the most part it feels pretty good like the heroes feel like at least like reasonably balanced and the games when you draft you can make some pretty functional decks and pretty solid decks but like we've played a lot of tales of aria sealed and the amount of time we'd open a sealed deck and be like this is a lexi pool was pretty close to zero. And sometimes we're like, this probably isn't a Lexi pool, but if anything's going to be a Lexi pool, this is it. We tried the Lexi pool and it still wasn't good. So it's not like we're giving her a shot. It's just Lexi and Seal just like wasn't very playable. And I haven't played a lot of Uprising Sealed, but my kind of understanding is that Dromai is very bad in Uprising Sealed because everyone has six packs worth of poppers. And also you don't have, like when you're playing Dromai in draft, you know, you need to get a high red count for your deck to function. And it's a lot harder to get a very a focused deck around what you're trying to do in sealed compared to draft. Yeah. And there's a common element to kind of what you were talking about there, where the sets with talented heroes, at least, obviously introduce the second stratification of the hero base between the classes and the talents. And then I guess then also within those subtexts, there's also the third stratification of their strategy. So not only, like you said, does Dromai want draconic dragons, but she wants red draconic dragons with a lot of go-again effects. And it's hard to get a concentrated amount of those effects within six booster packs. Whereas I guess like the best sealed format is going to be obviously Welcome to Wraith. And so that puts it in the best limited category from both sealed and um, draft, in my opinion, then. And that's because the only stratification there really is just the classes. So it's pretty easy. And I think we've had this before where you could even have like a Bravo pool where you're happy to put Snapdragon scalers in it because you just have this interesting um, 
deck where you have lots of little cost things and you can still swing Anathos sometimes with a blue for four, but that's not like the primary focus of your deck. And you can still kind of go like little Bravo, which isn't really a thing you can do in other limited formats, I guess. Yeah. Nimbleism and a nimble strike and a swing Anathos for six. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's what I'm so that's like the first primary like thing I, I'd be cautious of. So how do you think the talent system could be adapted in Outsiders to kind of like alleviate kind of what we've seen in the past few sets? So I think, we, so we've had three talented limited sets. We've had Monarch, Monarch, which I haven't had enough experience with to really have a lot of takeaways from it. We had Aria, which I think the talents were like not really, I think the talents actually worked super well in Tales of Aria. I think like the way that most of the cards were playable in two of the three characters or Basically, all the talented cards are playable in two of the three characters. I think it led to a really interesting draft format, and I think if the sealed, if it was balanced a little better for sealed, where Lexi wasn't so bad, I think the format would have actually been very good. And then you have Uprising, where everything that says ice on it is an Icelander card, and every a lot of the draconic cards were yes, you could play them in Fi or Dromai, but a lot of them just ended up bad or only good in one. I guess like it was really hard to make cards like Flame Call Awakening work in your Dromai deck. And that card was great in five, but pretty mediocre in Dromai. So I guess if everything that is talented kind of is only works for one character, you'd think it'd kind of be more like Welcome to Wraith where everyone just like has their class cards. But the problem with Uprising, in my opinion, was it was like that where basically everything only went in one deck, except like a few notable exceptions like Sasha Sanakai went in both Fi and Dromai. But for the most part, everything went in one deck except the generics and then it just weren't a lot of generics and i think that's part of why the talent i don't know if it's the talent system that really is at fault for that but i think as long as the the way they do the talent system if it's more like aria where there's like crossover where the cards every card's playable in a good or a lot of the talented cards are playable in half or more than half of the decks i think it'll be a lot more interesting than maybe uprising was yeah and i guess if we look at if we're comparing contrasting dynasty to the other talented limited formats so there's monarch where the two talents were light and shadow and then you had two heroes in each category of of light and shadow so there was crossover between the two light heroes and then crossover between the two shadow heroes and different light and shadow cards played differently within those two hero categories but obviously you couldn't mix and match between those two talents and then the individual class cards were a lot of the time then also stratified as like light warrior a lot of the time there weren't a lot of just like generic warrior generic illusionist generic like so the stratification wasn't felt as much in that limited format at least from the experiences we've had but if we look back to Aria, technically there was one talent in that set and it was Elemental. Uh, so like Elemental, I, I think is like the, like the talent or whatever. And then you get to the stratification of like what element you are from Elemental. But each one of those heroes were two out of the three, um, obviously elements in that set. So that means you could comfortably pick a first, like uh, an Earth card first and be like, well, okay, well, I am either Oldheim or, or, sorry, this pick puts me in the lane of Oldheim or Briar, but that doesn't mean that you then couldn't take an ice card second. And then you're like, okay, well, now I have a card for Oldheim, Briar, and Oldheim Lexi. So it's a lot easier to kind of start flexing and pivoting your picks from there. Whereas in Uprising, if you take a Draconic card, you're taking it for two out of the three heroes and then literal old Icelander sitting over here like I can't I can't do anything with this card so I think that was the biggest awkward pain point in Dynasty for me was just how out of place Icelander felt and I'm curious to see if they will keep putting in I guess like if, if they want to keep putting in talents that aren't native to like the region I think that makes sense but I don't think you can just kind of like put in one subtype of that talent. I, I think you kind of want to balance it out a little bit better. Yeah, that that's fair. And I guess it's hard to give too much criticism, I feel like, towards Uprising. Because I think the game, the limited games actually played very well. I just think like the drafting process was pretty bad. And there's other things you can kind of point fingers at that might have also led to that. Like the 14 cards instead of 15 cards, meaning you just like had to find your lane because you're going to have three less cards basically every draft. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess to supplement that, you know, there was there was the Phoenix Flames as well as 
the token Heliod's Miter piece of equipment. How did you feel about uh, having just like a starting piece of token equipment off to the side for like a limited format? I actually thought when I first heard about Heliod's Miter, I'm like, this is kind of dumb. Why are we going to have any equipment that just starts there? But the way it actually played out, I think it was a very important piece of the puzzle to making like Icelander at a fair power level and also kind of saving most heroes that pick on taking a hat though if you were Icelander you still had to use a pick to get your glacial horns which was tough especially when you're the class or the character that doesn't get phoenix flames so you need you still needed your 30 cards and your four equipment and you it was really hard like you were talking about earlier with hedging between being Icelander and the draconic cards the draconic heroes because if you picked an Icelander card it couldn't be played anyone else and there was like poppers and red scar for a scar and those were and everything else was Icelander only (laughs) so yeah but I I would say that I guess jumping back to your question that I think Heliod's Miter did play very well and I wouldn't be surprised to see them do something like that again I think it was good okay we also saw for the first time in uh, Uprising as well no draftable equipment in the set so in i guess welcome rate didn't have draftable draftable weapons i should say um, oh weapons yeah sorry i said equipment uh, <laughs> uh draftable weapons um so obviously in tales of aria if you were in oldheim and you had winter's whale with like the ice cards to support it then like you were just at a significant advantage in that format as well as kind of like bolton with raiden like he played significantly more powerfully than bolton with the axes obviously because instead of having to pay resources to swing with your weapons you then just got to do it for free so that seems a lot better of a cost so do you could like the fact that there aren't like majestic or like higher rarity weapons that can kind of add that element of variance or do you think it could be done right yeah my only real experience with this is aria and in aria i think the draftable weapons were not good for the format. Like when you had Winner's Will in your Oldheim deck, your deck was just like, like I think I would take Winner's Will over most legendaries in that format. It just like is so powerful, I guess. Just like first making your Titan's Fist never swing for three, just the fact that it always swings for four no matter what card you pitch. And then also like that Frostbite on hit is really strong. And <laughs> I think that Oldheim with Winner's Will is probably the best deck by a reasonable amount in that format. If you like, that's probably the biggest bomb. And I don't think that's healthy to have cards that are that bomby and it did kind of warp your drafting a little bit when you had it but it wasn't in an interesting way it's just like i need blue ice cards now so i can swing my winners well and i don't need the big blue three block guardian attacks because they don't swing winners well as well as ice cards do yeah i was just gonna say that i thinking about it too winners well is just strictly better than titan's fist even when you don't have ice cards because it just always swings for four and i realized that oh yeah some of the time, I guess like you never want to be doing this, but unless you're pitching a cost with three or greater thing for Titan's Fist, you're only swinging three damage where Winter's Whale is just like, just give me an evil blue and I'll come in for four damage at least. So it was just like a strictly better card to have in old I'm 100% of the time. Whereas Duskblade was not very good. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it was probably wrong to ever put duskblade in a deck there might be some situation where you know your old time opponent has like multiple rejuvenates or something and they're trying to hard <laughs> fatigue you and and you're like all right i'm gonna duskblade is gonna get all these counters because they have no way to pressure me at all then maybe it would be better to play duskblade but like rosetta thorns just like was better than duskblade it was, no barrier. <laughs> so it was just two free damage every time you swung it <laughs> i guess there are earth react things you could do but like Still, like it, it was still really hard to play around Rosetta Thorn in that format. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say. I think Winner's Will is kind of like really bad for the draft format, but Rosetta Thorn is also not great. True, true. So I guess let's talk about arcane damage in a format then. So I guess in Tales of Aria, infamously, there was no arcane barrier at common. There was, I think, the only piece of arcane barrier was the legendary chess piece Heart of Ice, which was interesting <laughs> yeah and then there wasn't a lot of arcane barrier in dynast or sorry uprising there was the common wizard chess piece but there was the supplemental uh mechanic of quell which kind of let you hedge between the physical and arcane damage do you think that arcane damage is hard to balance for a limited format or do you think it just needs to be handled very carefully yeah, I really wish I had more experience with Arcane Rising like drafts because we're not talking about Arcane Rising for a reason. 
Because I, I feel like from the sample size of Briar and Icelander as the only two heroes I've really played with that dealt arcane damage in limited, I think like it's kind of hard to say what the correct answer is. I think like if Rosetta Thorn was tuned down a little bit, I think Briar's arcane damage probably would have been fine. And I think the way they did Icelander here where everyone gets arcane barrier one at common and they don't have the Nolrun equipment at all and they have quell i again i still feel like this draft format played really well and i think like it did kind of lead to a spot where like you need those arcane barrier equipments against icelander but they if you didn't have silent stilettos and you're playing a draw my mirror or draw my and defy it doesn't feel like it matters but if you don't have them into icelander it's like huge yeah i didn't really like that where the cards are like that polarized sometimes and i imagine arcane rising had a similar thing where nolrun your first piece of nolrun was great against viscerai and every nolrun you could get was great against kano <laughs> yeah and that then then they all had the rare spell void pieces of equipment in that set too which was also an interesting place for those pieces of equipment I, to exist was the spell void in those i thought it was in like blitz decks there were spell void in arcane rising okay i didn't even know that <laughs> yeah that we weird. Yeah, I think we got a box of Arcane Rising and or maybe we maybe we did like a couple boxes, maybe two or three or, or like but I think after like our second box of Arcane Rising Limited, we were like, would you ever play Kano or Azalea? Azalea and we were like, no, and then we didn't play it again. <laughs> well, I think part of that was also we well, you ran pretty hot on opening Command and Conquer so you didn't really need to buy more. Oh, and Art of Wars too, yeah, importantly. So that's but, I was br- busted from like a majestic level. But yeah, I think we also had one sealed where one of us had an induction chamber and then that also kind of made oh, it much yeah. less enjoyable. It's just like, did you open in- induction chamber? Yes. Okay. Well, next pool. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, well. I imagine the draft format was, oh, I hope the draft format was better and I would like to try it at some point, but yeah, it's hard for it to be worse. That's for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. I guess so. Importantly, though, Arcane Rising is the only other set aside from Welcome to Rate that has four heroes, though. So, do you hope Outsiders has four heroes? Have you liked three heroes? Or <laughs> Monarch like... also had four. Oh, yeah, Monarch did have four. I always forget about Levia being in that set. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's where she is. Uh, <laughs> so, I guess. how do you think four heroes versus three heroes compares for like a limited format do you think it like because if classes are also a further stratification you would think that three heroes would open things up more but i don't think that that's necessarily the case yeah it's it's weird because i think welcome wraith is the best limited format and it has four heroes but i also kind of like maybe it's because tales of aria was what what we started with and what we played so much of but I'm just like that that felt like a very good recipe. And like I still think the balance was off, but I think the recipe there of having the three heroes with some overlap worked really well. And maybe a four hero thing where there is some overlap between characters in ways other than just like how Monarch did it, how it had two light and two dark. I'd like to see if they're doing four heroes, I'd like to see them like experiment with other kinds of overlap that make more cards playable in more decks. Yeah, definitely. So and I don't think that even needs to be like a talent system per se, but, and, and you also don't have to dilute it with generics because I know generics come with their own can of worms where not only for limited purposes, but anytime you print a strong generic, that means lo and behold, every single deck in any format ever can play that card. So I think they really want to start tempering down how impactful they make generics going forward as the game expands. But there could be just kind of like an overarching sub theme. I, I don't know, but obviously I, I haven't like given this a lot of thought. But even or I guess like even if they just did what like we saw with the Emperor, I think the Emperor actually opens up like really interesting design space with like warrior ninjas or stuff like that. Like combining classes and combining classes and talents, I think could be like a really interesting way to start giving more flexibility to heroes unlimited. Yeah, definitely. I was gonna say, well, I, I think I think that does seem really cool if they do like dual classes. Cause like if you had like a light and dark, or if you had like two light heroes and two dark heroes, and one of the light and one of the dark is a warrior, and the other light and the other dark is like a ninja, but maybe they're like double class, like one of the light ones like a warrior. I d I don't know. There's there's 
there's so much design space that 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 I think is like opened up with like the introduction of the emperor, and it's a shame that the emperor is not like a little bit better. But it's also one of those things where he's a legendary hero, so they probably didn't want him to be busted, busted, because then it's just a paywall behind one of the best heroes in Blitz. So it makes sense that they kind of designed it to be more cool and interesting than powerful. But who knows? Maybe he is actually busted. We just haven't found the right build. Yeah, it is kind of difficult in another sense that like if you're making these dual class heroes you have to make sure they're not broken and class constructed and if it leads to a good limited format but class constructed only sees these four heroes for the rest of time then (laughs) it's hard to call it a win overall but another direction they could go is something like how in welcome to wraith they had like the big attacks package and the little attacks package where welcome to wraith had like slogism and pummel and stuff that was like decks that wanted a lot of resources and to play big things could do like slog is some regurgitating slog and they had pummel and then well and then they also had goliath gauntlet and then uh it also had the little attacks it had razor reflex and it had the nimbleism nimble strike combo and it also had snapdragon scalers and like that was ways to have overlap where like dorinthia and katsu usually had overlap in the small attacks and bravo and reinar had overlap in the big attacks but you could still sometimes just be like well my katsu deck's gonna play four big attacks a pummel and and a goliath gauntlet because i didn't get the ninja gloves or whatever and it would work fine and it was i think that was kind of a cool thing that had overlap but it like and like it naturally fit in some heroes to play them but it wasn't like other heroes couldn't do it as well so yeah there was some of that going on in monarch as well now that i'm thinking about it where i guess how they designed it now that i'm thinking about it they had a little light in a little shadow warrior in bolton and chain and then they had a big light and a big shadow in levia and prism and then that's where you had belittle minnowism um i don't remember what the big stuff matter was from that format but i'm sure it's there was it zealous belting Oh, Zealous Belting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how they balance that out. And I think in draft that kind of been that would have been really interesting because I guess even in like each one of the sub heroes too, you still had cards like Bolting Blade um out of Bolton that could have been like, okay, so now I'm big Bolton. And maybe there's like little prism or maybe there's some version of Levia that's playable. Who knows? That and it like that maybe that interest that format's way more interesting than we've given it credit for and it's a shame just given the circumstance of the world didn't allow us to explore it more i guess yeah i agree i think <laughs> the power level of little minnowism is very different from whatever the big stuff was in that format unless there's something happening that i'm not aware of but i i do wish we got to play with it more and maybe we should try to get a group together and draft some monarch and some arcane rising sometime and just yeah i think i have i definitely have some number of monarch cases over there Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I guess it doesn't matter anymore because the all the prices collapse anyways. I think it's mostly first edition, but if those boxes aren't worth anything anyways, sure we can bust one open sometimes and get a draft going. Cool. You know I'm always down for drafting. Yeah, it's the only way I can lure you out to our local game store. <laughs> it's not that local for me. It's like twenty some minutes away. It's so far. We live ten minutes away from each other. It's the same drive for both of us. I'm there every Monday. <laughs> <laughs> You, can't, you don't Monday get that night. excuse anymore. You can't say it's too far away from me because if it's too far away from you, it's too far away from me, buddy. Nice try. <laughs> Even when I did go to draft, I had to leave early still. Yeah, that's not because of distance. That's because of Dungeons and Dragons. Well, if it was in my backyard, I could have played round three and been on time for Dungeons and Dragons. Mm, okay, I'll build a back game store in your backyard. I don't know if I want that either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyways, so also as we were talking... I don't know why this popped in my head, but how do you feel about a ranger assassin Azalea? Because isn't Azalea like she has like all of those like red in the ledger and all of those like contract X cards? It feels like now that I'm thinking about it, like this is like completely freeformed spitballing off the top of my head and like headshot. And she feels very assassin y like in like some of her cards. I don't know. Like I'm kind of interested in like. A ranger assassin azalea now how does how is that thought hitting you this might be a complete tangent for a second but i, I want to hear your thoughts on on a ranger assassin i i just i feel like there is a lot of overlap between rangers and assassins they're both like kind of stealthy they both have like one hit that matters a lot usually ranger is like an arrow in the right spot assassins usually like a dagger or a knife in the right spot but like it's usually like one critical hit that like fells their opponent and 
they're both sneaky. So like it kind of makes sense that they could easily overlap. But I think like I guess I feel like assassins like intrinsically are just like tied to knives and daggers and don't really use bows. But they use bows. Snipers in a lot of games. Uh, I guess like I'm thinking like Fire Emblem or like a lot of high fantasy things like Legolas and things like that, like long distance, like longbow snipers. Yeah, Legolas is a a ranger. Yeah, but he was capable of longbow sniping too, right? Yeah, yeah, but that's just being a good ranger. Well, there you go. A sniper. A sniper is... That's a type of assassin. Harvey Lee Oswald was a ranger assassin. We're going really off the rails here now. Okay, so let's bring it back to limited talk here. So I guess that's also something we glossed over. 14 versus 15 cards in a booster pack. Obviously, I think we're both on the same page that we hope that they go back to 15 cards in a booster pack, right? Yeah, I think so. And honestly, after seeing how big of a difference going to 14 from 15, Matt, I'd love to try a set with that, that had 16 in every pack and just see how much more time you get from those three extra cards, how many more sideboard options you have. I don't know if it's like feasible for them to do that, but it would I'm be sure cool to is. try it. Cause, and I know that like the supplemental sets have 10 cards per pack. So like, I guess they can do different pack sizes. Yeah, the only question would be like, if you put the extra card in the pack, how does that affect like distribution and like box sizes and things like that? Does that change anything? But like, mm-hmm. that's a completely different question that we're talking about. But 16 cards in a pack would be interesting. So if there were 16 cards in a pack, then would you take out the token equipment stuff then? Because at a certain point, the more cards you add, the more homogenized decks become, right? Yeah. Again, I, I have obviously don't have a lot of experience like with 16 card packs but <laughs> i think it would be it would make sense that they would take out the token equipment and i think the token equipment was kind of a concession to the 14 card packs and just like also to making sure icelander wasn't too out of line going first basically mm. and so yeah I, I guess i would be inclined to start with not having a token equipment if i was doing 16 card packs but it's mostly just like i think it would be a cool thing to try after seeing how much of a difference going down to 14 made and then i guess i didn't think about this either so 14 cards and sealed also is a lot more impactful because then you're getting six less cards in order to make a seal pool whereas if you go up to 16 cards in a pack that's 16 more or sorry six more cards you're getting in a sealed pool so that could obviously really help alleviate some of like those issues of hitting the specific cards you need for certain strategies in order to like function so maybe 16 is like the magic number that would kind of like help fix sealed as well it'd be interesting to see i think and then i think then also then if you're going 16 cards in a pack then you you would want four heroes then too because like i said if it was less heroes but 16 cards in a pack that kind of like could lead to a lot of situations where the three heroes are getting everything they want too often in limited but i think it could be balanced out well for four heroes yeah that makes a lot of sense to me what about five heroes? Do you think they could ever go more than five heroes in a limited set or four heroes in a limited set? It'd be difficult if they did that. It would have to be like a set where it's mostly generics or mostly talent cards that are not like class specific or the heroes would have to overlap in class. Like there'd be kind of like the other example, but it could be like three warriors and three ninjas. And then one of them is actually a warrior ninja or something. <laughs> and then then I wouldn't be too worried about it. But with five heroes, it's just hard to give if they're using anywhere near the same ratios of cards that are specific to one hero, it'd be really hard to make that work, I think. There was rumors, I remember when uh, Upright, Uprising, I was get Uprising and Dynasty confused for some reason in my mind. Oh, and Uprising was coming out that there was a secret fourth hero and that it wouldn't necessarily be a token hero. Do you think they could do a, like a draftable hero in a set? Like at rare or something or majestic? Yeah, yeah. Like at, at like I don't think you want to put it at majestic because that might make it like happen too infrequently. But kind of like how um, Arachne is a rare hero in Uprising. Do you think Dynasty. they could just <laughs> in Dynasty? <laughs> uh, do you think they could make it so that a hero is not necessarily like automatically playable, but like you draft your hero as part of the process? Yeah, I I think they could do that. I think that would be pretty cool design space to work with i think obviously it couldn't be like too unique like you couldn't put like icelander and as like a unique hero in the middle of like um outsiders but as long as it's shared at least like a class and talent system or like you could even like mix and match like maybe there was like a draconic wizard 
as like a rare hero in uh, Uprising. Like that could have been interesting. Yeah, I think an easy example is if Bravo Star of the Show was in Tales of Aria Limited, I think that would have been fine. Just like it's not very far outside the line of what's normally happening, but suddenly you're a guardian that gets access to all three elements now instead of just two. And that would slightly change how you draft things. And Oh, and that'd be sick. Like imagine like you're like all in on like a Briar deck or whatever in your first two packs and then pack three, you see like Bravo star of the show and you're like, oh, sweet. And then your opponent passes you ice cards. They're like, you're not on uh, old time. And all of a sudden like you're like snatching up like ice cards all of pack three. And then like the whole draft kind of like gets turned on its head because somebody opened up like one of those. I don't know. I don't know if that'd be like good necessarily, but it sounds like interesting. Yeah, they like they'd have to play test the format with the hero and see how it changed things and stuff. But I, I definitely think it would be reasonable to add a draftable hero to the set. And I think that's just like kind of an example that I think wouldn't be that hard for them to make work. I don't know if it would work if you just slot Bravo into the Tales of Aria packs at rare or majestic in the current draft format. But I think yeah, like fun. I said, I would be hesitant to put it at majestic, but because I I, I wouldn't want the hero to be so pushed that like. It's just far and away better than the token heroes. I think it's fine to have it be a little bit better than the token heroes because you don't start with it and it's hard for you to necessarily like plan a whole draft around getting that hero. And and then you could do like interesting picks like I don't have this hero yet, but like maybe if I do in like these two marginal picks, I'll take the one that like really, really rewards me if I do get this hero, but doesn't like necessarily super punish me right now. And it's parts like a card that like is like marginal in the first few bits. Yeah. The more I think about this, the more I think it's really interesting and I hope it happens. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, it's not just the cost of like having to open it. You also have to like spend a pick on picking up the hero. So if you're spending a pick and like your pick one or pick two or even pick three taking this hero, that's a pretty big cost compared to taking like a solid playable at that point. You have to get 30 solid cards to have a good deck and taking a hero that's like a pretty big cost especially if it could be over a pretty good card or an equipment because it's pack or pick one or pick two that's fair and okay uh do you have anything else before i guess about a draftable hero because i i have another uh thing i want to talk about now that just popped in my head i'm ready for the next thing okay phoenix flames phoenix flames so token cards that aren't crack bobble that you can put in your deck how did you feel about phoenix flames so i want to say that i really liked how phi played not i don't like five mirrors but i think like the hero design is pretty cool and i like that they're they're like strong linear aggro decks have looked reasonably different and have different play patterns despite the fact that they're just like throwing more damage at each other so i really like five design and that kind of required phoenix flames to exist and tokens or somehow but i didn't love the concept and i also like the fact that they had to design so many of the draconic talent like draconic classless cards around phoenix flame and Droma doesn't even want to put Phoenix Flames in her deck. I think that led to a really weird spot, and I I can't say I loved it. I guess. Yeah, and it also felt like it kind of let Phi have a lower threshold of playable cards because at that point, then you only had to get to twenty eight, twenty seven playable good cards in order to have like a, a good like Phi deck, and I think like maybe one is okay in a Dromai deck is if you have like Burnaways or like other cards that can kind of like help you use the Phoenix Flame, but it's obviously not a card you want three of in Dromai by any means, especially given that it doesn't block. And then obviously Icelander, you just had to get 30 old Icelander cards in order to <laughs> make Icelander work. So I kind of put this interesting dynamic as far as like draft strategies and what you had to think about when drafting in order to i guess have functional decks at the end because nobody he wants the other token that's always allowed for everybody which is crack bobble so yeah. it i guess in dromai it felt slightly better than cracked bobble in Phi, i actively wanted two in a lot of my fight decks if i had uh one or two copies of flame call awakening i'd be very happy to put the second phoenix flame in my deck and icelander didn't have access to it so i yeah yeah, and Fly had the whole piece of equipment that rewarded you for having um, Phoenix Flames on the combat chain with um, Heat Heatwave. Heat yeah, I knew it was Heat something, but uh, Heatwave, thank you. So like, even if you had three, if you could get them all on the same combat chain somehow, or, or just even having two on the combat chain, that's getting you two damage out of your piece of equipment in Limited, which is pretty good. Yeah, it's a Goliath Gauntlet. <laughs> One of the best equipment in Walker to Wraith. Yeah, true. I mean, but like... 
I guess we could talk about that. Like, how do you feel about the equipment design overall and limited? And like, I guess we talked about arcane barrier, but what about just like overall? How do you think like equipment has been designed for limited? So I really liked Eyesigner's three pieces of equipment. I think the it's conditional to get shoes, but yeah, the chess piece with the conditional one resource that you can only use on your opponent's turn. You can't use it on your turn. It seemed it had arcane barrier on it, so it was like very broken in the Eyesigner mirror, but. I think it felt like a good power level that I like against both Dromai and Fi. Same with Sash's Sandakai, where it's one resource, but it's conditional. And Sash still ended up being like a super high pick. But I think it feels much more in line than something like Heart and Cross Strap, where you sacrifice and you get two off the cost of your next attack. Or even even Deep Blue, I think, was reasonably more powerful than either of these equipment in terms of how many resources it produced. And I kind of like the slightly toned back equipment. Even it's still very powerful and it's still frequently an early pick or a pick even a pick one but it's definitely weaker than some of the old equipment yeah i was gonna say i think deep blue is the most egregious piece of like common equipment we've seen just because of how far above and away it was in power level to like any other piece of equipment at common in that set just the ability to like turn any of like your awkward hands into functional hands that now have access to resources for just the cost of one equipment and then like you would have to have pitched that card anyways it goes to the bottom of your deck is was just like so so much more powerful than any other piece of like equipment in that set although i guess like the second runner-up was the earth hat that let you like turn a blue into your hand into an earth card at instant speed that card was like really good in like the right situations yeah i I think that card is a much better place to concentrate power like your power budget too i guess if that makes sense like this card is really powerful but you have to build around it you need like situationally very good earth cards that like maybe not situation but you'd have to have good earth cards to use it and you have to get them in your graveyard before it does anything and on top of that it's there's like a lot of like decision making in terms of when you use it there's a lot of like thinking and like better players will be able to get more value out of their hat a lot of the time when that's their hat and i think that's like a good spot to have a powerful piece of equipment where like the difference between using it optimally and using it maybe in not the right spot isn't as clear as it that's something like Deep Blue where you're like, wow, my hand's all red and I have a two cost with go again and a one cost that I want to play or a two cost with go again and a Rosetta Thorn I want to swing. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a much better spot for having strong equipment. Okay. How do you feel about the legendary equipment in Limited? I think that's kind of, it doesn't come up very often, but when it does, it can be a real feel bad, I feel like. Yeah, I think that the way... Like legendary equipment's kind of a more of a concession to constructed than limited. And I think that sometimes your opponent, you sit down and they have Flame Scale Furnace or Crown of Providence or even Tiger Stripe Shiko and it's stupid. Or you sit down for the Ice Center Mirror and they have a Luvian and Stellas and you're just <laughs> like, the, okay, that was yes, the one I'm that dead. I was thinking of in particular. Yeah. And that kind of, I want to touch on another thing with Alluvian and Stellas where, but first, I think that legendary equipment being not balanced for limited, I think is fine. And you're going to get some wins that are like you wouldn't have been able to win with any other card because you have legendary equipment and i don't think that's great but i think that it is a concession worth making for having good and cool equipment for constructed that's fair what do you think about that so i don't know how much most how much better obviously they're better but it it very rarely feels like oh you have a legendary piece of equipment i can't win or like you have like i I think maybe it's worth like five percentage points roughly i guess if i had to give like a rough quantitative guess off the top of my head like between sutcliffe suede hides i guess i'm thinking of and um spellbound creepers spellbound creepers i don't think there was a major difference in that limited format like most of the time one action point is really all you really need and they both kind of cost a resource so i don't think like like that particular piece of legendary equipment doesn't make a huge resource i think crown of providence is fine um it gets you two life and lets you filter a card it's a very good effect but it's not like egregious. I feel like I, I think it's just a good reward. But decks can obviously still outvalue that, and uh, a better deck overall will still handily beat a card like Crown of Providence. Like it's just not going to matter. I think the pieces of equipment that are like the most problematic are like Valiant Dynamo or um, what's the legendary chess piece for Bravo in Welcome to Race? Tectonic Blading tectonic plating or scabskin leathers and stuff like that the ones that let you block a lot 
and get like recursive value, I think those wind up being the big most problematic like legendaries as far as limited goes. And Luvian Constellus definitely falls into that category if you want to go off on a Luvian Constellus now. So so it's not just a Luvian Constellus. I think like the idea of sideboard equipment is just pretty bad because first off, it's hard to use it's hard to spend a lot of picks on equipment. Like sometimes you need two chests or two boots or whatever if one of them's a sideboard piece. Like there's definitely times where I was playing Dromai and I had my silent stilettos and I'm also like, I kind of want this quelling slippers because it's much better against Fi. I'm never using the silent stilettos against Fi. And I think that just isn't great for the draft format, especially with how high equipment are picked. And then jumping back to Tales of Aria also, even if it's an equipment that's useless in one matchup and good in the other two, like something like Runaways in that format, I think is also just not great for the game. Yeah, I would agree. And I guess in Aria, there was, like we said, the one piece of equipment, Heart of Ice, that actually had Arcane Barrier. And its activated ability was almost non-existently like useful. Like, I guess maybe you can activate it against Oldheim if you wanted to but like it's not like super impactful but just the fact like it was the only way to get arcane barrier at legendary and like that could really matter against uh briar especially if you're playing old time just being able to like block both um like the one earth card that pings bramble spark bramble spark or random ball lightning effects that are pushed or repeatedly absorb one more damage off of Rosetta's Thorn's Wings, I think is very, very impactful. And I think it was like not great to lock that card behind Legendary in that format. But Yeah, I, I don't like... Again, I think this is like specifically a sideboard card for Briar and against everyone else, it's Iron Rot Chest, which I don't think is, again, a very good spot for equipment to be where it's just good against some people and useless against others. Yeah. I guess if we look at like what like the generic damage mitigation uh, effects were. So we started with Iron Rot and Welcome to Wraith. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what was in uh, Arcane Rising, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it just had the Null Rune. <laughs> Null Rune. Okay, that's weird. Um, then we had Iron Hide and Monarch. We just kind of had random, not really a lot of damage mitigation in Tales of Aria. And then we had Quell in Uprising. Which one of those do you think is like like the best designed or like which one of those do you feel like had the most impact in like the format? Yeah, I actually, I think Iron Rot was pretty good. I think Quell is a good balance between blocking physical and arcane damage that because you can't really have Iron Rot in a format that has a wizard and expect it to be good. But I guess... Arcane Rising also had Null Rune in a format that some characters didn't do arcane damage, and I think that was also not good either. So I think I I liked Iron Rod better than Iron Hide, especially because Monarch had not a lot of ways to use resources on your opponent's turn. And right. the characters that did have it, I think Prism could pretty well, but not really anyone else. And I think that's not a really... I don't like that imbalance where the generic equipment is so much better in one hero than the others. And I guess, though, between Quell and Iron Rot, I, I don't know which one I like better. I think they were both pretty good. Okay. Do you think you could ever have just like more battle-worn equipment? So that kind of would raise the power level of like the format overall. And I think in Welcome to Wraith, like all of the classes have like common battle-worn pieces of equipment. But would you like to see like maybe like a generic piece of battle-worn equipment that maybe had like a marginal effect? Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be cool. I th- The marginal effect would have to be not super strong. Like maybe it's a headpiece that blocks I was thinking like maybe just give then... like Cracker Jack's Battle Warren. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That that does kind of push the equipment into being really strong again, where you're getting two points of value on equipment, but a, a generic equipment, that's probably just like something you'd first pick almost always. But I think like something like a hat that has Battle Warren one and then has Ragamuffin's ability or something would be perfectly fine for limited. Yeah. So I guess. Is Deep Blue three value off of a piece of equipment or is it one value for the effect of a card? Or like, how do you value Deep Blue in terms of like rate? So the way I value Deep Blue is like the turn you are using it, you are turning a card that would pitch for one resource into a card that pitches for three resources. So it's worth two resources, basically. So it has a value of two, basically. So very good piece of equipment. And I think like part of Deep like the biggest reason Deep Blue is so powerful is first, there weren't any good chests other than Deep Blue in the format, I'm pretty sure. There was Code of Frost, but Code of Frost is not 
great because you didn't know when the frostbite would matter and your opponent kind of see it before they made their blocks. They they knew you were activating it. And then it also was- Most of the time you'd want to activate Code of Frost on turn zero, right? So you just like, you're on the, pl- you, you go first, you just activate your Code of Frost, give them a frostbite to slow down their turn one and then you arsenal card and pass. Like that was its like best case scenario, right? I'm not sure what the best case scenario <laughs> for it is because I, I felt like a lot of the time I did that a lot of heroes couldn't spend four cards anyway, or a lot of the time they might not be able to spend the four cards anyway. Like Lexi can still only load one arrow and fire one arrow. So <laughs> it, it really depended on her hand and the hands, but I, I didn't love Kodo Frosting on turn zero. I just like kind of like would randomly use it at some point towards the middle of the game where I'm like, maybe this will make a difference here since they want to block with something and then play something. And yeah. Okay. But I can't remember where I was going before we talked about Kodo Frost. Generic chess pieces uh in tales of aria or chess pieces in tales of aria limited deep blue was the best one because code of frost was the other one and then we talked about use cases of code of frost <laughs> okay if that rings any bells if not we can move on i think we can move on i lost whatever i was thinking okay. do you have any uh final i guess thoughts uh feelings hopes for outsiders i guess before we wrap things up then yeah, so you kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but I really hope we see some limited callings. I hope this format is designed with sealed in mind and has a good sealed format as well as a good draft format, and we get to see some limited callings. And Welcome to Wraith was perfect because it had a good sealed format and a good draft format. And I think Rhinar was the worst, but it wasn't by a lot. And there's also been other people saying that other heroes are the worst and stuff. <laughs> But yeah, I, yeah I think, some people say Katsu is the worst in Welcome to Raid somehow. I guess we we thought that for a long time, and then we were like, oh, wait, you can actually be Katsu really well. Because I think Katsu kind of comes across as being the worst because all three of the other weapons are kind of above rate in one way or another, and Katsu is just one resource for one damage. But it has kind of it kind of has evasion and it's really good at using random excess resources and ends up being pretty strong once you know how to play Katsu, I guess, or learn all the things you can do outside of just like the combo lines are all strong and then like the things you can do outside of the combo lines are also pretty strong so yeah and it's your ability allowing you to like tutor up the cards for the combo lines helps smooth out his consistency too mm-hmm. okay so i'm gonna get out my little soapbox here i'm just gonna all right plop it down i'm gonna get on my soapbox my biggest pet peeve in limited is when people say sealed is a luck based format <laughs> based on what you open that is wrong it's especially wrong in draft but it's very wrong about sealed and it's one of the biggest criticisms i hear about sealed and i hate it i hate it so much sealed is intrinsically a person's ability to evaluate a pool of resources and maximize them that's what it is and especially in a game like flesh and blood there's no game there's no like i guess there are very few instances of cards that your opponent just can't deal with or win the game as soon as they're played uh that might have been a bigger issue in games like magic where like oh this just one mythic rare is unbeatable it's like uh, the scarab god you can't kill it it gets recursive value turn after turn after turn you, you drop it on the battlefield you win the game like that that's that's that feels bad and it's sealed and takes away from some of the skill level but like in flesh and blood you still have to like look at like your available resources your pool your i guess like your attack actions your non-attack actions what hero strategy you want to use there's so many different layers that you have to consider when you're opening up just like six booster packs that like i think it's really rewarding and engaging in this game and when done right is not at all just like a luck-based thing it's just one of the most skill-intensive things you can do in the game and i think even in a format of like tales of aria like i think i lost one game of sealed and did you lose it all in in, in sealed during the swiss rounds michael yeah i lost to tark okay well that checks out um (laughs) but like and and like that could have people could easily say like oh yeah that's just all about like how good of a pool of like briar you opened where like that's some of it but there are opportunities to play other heroes and even when you just open up like a briar pool maximizing it knowing what cards are good and what cards are bad and understanding like actually how to construct the deck with what you're given is super skill intensive and that's why sealed is actually like my favorite way to play most games i i, I just really love that aspect of sealed so i can get off my soapbox now yeah i, I think that's i think that's one thing we have in common and that we both really love sealed and we've played a lot of seals together because 
I, I think sealed's probably the most like naturally skill testing version of playing a card game. Like constructed, a lot of it is like learning the reps, learning the matchups, learning how to sideboard, learning what gameplay sequences look like. And then draft, there is a lot of skill in draft and you make a lot of calculated risks and stuff. But sealed, you have all of the pieces here. You get to make all of the decisions based on like complete information, which puts it in like kind of a unique spot compared to draft where you're building a deck out of all the tools in front of you rather than taking calculated risks you're instead just what is the most efficient thing i can do with all of this and and i really agree with what you said about sealed i think that i kind of came around on this idea back in the magic days i was i heard at one point that pros have a higher or the highest win rate in sealed day one of grand prix which kind of surprised me at first but then i realized like i kind of learned how sealed it's the potential to like take a sealed pool and make the best thing possible with it it's pretty hard to do that consistently do that every time and it does help to have bombs and powerful cards that are above rate or whatever but it's it's a pretty unique puzzle every time you sit down and the skill it takes to build the best pool is a lot higher than i feel like a lot of the community really gives it credit for yeah absolutely i would agree and like you said hopefully we get some sweet sealed grand prix this year or sorry callings <laughs> hopefully like you said we get some sweet sealed callings this year and we can show off just how much of a low variance sealed is and just crush day one again. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess this. that wouldn't be any different than any other format of a tournament for you. So <laughs> <laughs> we say this, but I like two, three drops the day one. It's a high variance format, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm also like, I know that Uprising Sealed wasn't the best, but I was also still kind of sad we didn't get to play any Uprising Sealed at competitive level. What about seven packs Uprising Sealed? Do you think that would like just give it one more pack? I, I don't know. I didn't really play a lot of Uprising Sealed in, in our games. We'll do some seven pack Uprising Sealed and we'll let everybody know. In our games, I always felt like it was Icelander versus Fi and both heroes were very strong. And then I know there was like one sealed battle hardened where apparently it was all Fi everywhere. And I'm like, why aren't these people just playing Icelander and killing the Fies? <laughs> yeah, but you feel that way every time somebody doesn't play Icelanders. Yeah, like... Icelander's sweet. <laughs> you just give them a frostbite. They're like, oh no, I'm dead. I got a frostbite. I can't, I can't do anything anymore. Brain freeze them, put their blue on top or put their red on top. Whatever they needed, put it on top. <laughs> Easy game. <laughs> and you scar for a scar him, and then you find us fighting spirit. Um, I love Icelander. Yeah, so much of that. That's exactly what we do in classic instructed as well. Mm-hmm. It's just good. <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts then, Michael? I feel like I could talk about limited for I'm sure a lot could. longer than this podcast. I don't know if I have anything pressing or super related, but I'm just like, I really like limited and I hope it stays a large part in flesh and blood and honestly i really hope it's more a part of next year's flesh and blood than it was of 2022 yeah absolutely so i guess with that being said the next time you're building a sealed pool or drafting in your local draft pod always remember mind your manners thanks for listening 